0: But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh.
0: Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-host Tobias Wright. Creative consultant Oliver Camacho is also filing a field report from the Boston Early Music Festival, more from him later on in the show. All right. Normally we're live right here on WNUR FM, Evanston, Chicago. But now that it's summer, our team is traveling all over the world, making opera, making arts, making trouble. Not to worry. You'll get your OBS fix this summer. Most of our shows will be pre-recorded, but still released at their usual time. That's Mondays at 9 p.m. Central here on WNUR, and also as a podcast on iTunes. Over the next few months, you'll get all your favorite segments plus some new ones, as well as guest interviews, a couple of solo shows from me, and, of course, our team's hot takes on everything opera-related. Plus, you can still have your voice heard. Leave us a voicemail on 224-218-9BOX. That's 224-218-9269. You can tweet us at Opera Score, write to us via Facebook, or send us an email, Score at gmail.com. All right, tonight, Tobias and I break down... The 2017 BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition, which wrapped up on Sunday, will introduce you to some of the competitors, talk you through the winners, and there will be some spoilers. And then Oliver checks in from the Boston Early Music Festival. He'll get his highs and lows on this event, which focuses on an era of music which he truly knows and loves. Plus, you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. we got a lot to get to on the show tonight. Let's cut right to the chase.
1: Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score.
0: All right, Chalk Talk, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR89.3 FM. Hey, uh, feel free to tweet us at Opera Box Score. Hey, what do Bryn Turfell, Dmitry Vorostovsky, and Jamie Barton all have in common besides the ability to grow great facial hair? They've all been winners of the BBC Cardiff Singer of the World Trophy.
2: <laughs> I don't think Jamie Barton grows facial hair. <laughs> She's a woman.
0: Was that a cheap shot? <laughs> yeah,
2: it was. That was pretty bad. <laughs>
0: um, I, I don't have not known a ton about this competition. I did quite a bit of research on it, and I'm really excited about it. So here's the backstory: In 1983, BBC Wales creates this competition, and it's continued to develop over... Uh, the years it takes place every two years open to singers at the start of their professional careers aged 18 to 32 God that makes me feel old
2: <laughs> does it I mean 18 to 32 I don't think there are any 18 year olds though that are making the finals of so the card singer of the world
0: please to tell to. me that you're still eligible I am yeah, yeah.
2: I am still eligible. Not that I'm good enough to be considered, but you know what I mean? We'll
0: we'll, we'll get to that. So here's (laughs) how it works. After a three-stage selection process involving DVD and live auditions, 20 singers are invited to compete in Cardiff, Wales, to perform opera and concert music with a full orchestra in four concerts in front of a distinguished jury. So the winner from each concert, plus a wild card, All come together for this five-person final. There's also this parallel competition called the Singer of the World Song Prize, which I'm not going to spend too much time about in this intro. Here are the prizes. Trophy, of course, 15,000 pounds. Sterling, cold, hard cash. There's the Song (laughs) Prize, and then there's the Audience Prize, the Dame Jones Sutherland Audience Prize. That's for 2,500 pounds. And a crystal Trophy. We will spoil the winner of the competition at the end of this segment, Um, but I want to start asking you, Toby, Mm -hmm. what would it feel like to you to sing in a competition like this? Of this magnitude? I don't know.
2: It's kind of one of those deals where it's like going to the Met Finals. If you reach the finals of a competition of this magnitude, you've already accomplished a great deal, and you've already proven that you belong there, because so many people uh, compete for these spots. And so I think the nerves come from the initial application, the initial auditions. And once you can, and this is just my mindset, once you continue to advance, you know, you know that you belong there because they've let you move on. And if you're not good enough, they won't let you move on. So what would it feel like? I, I don't know. It'd be a great accomplishment. And I would hope that if I ever get into uh, a point in my career where I'm singing in the finals of a competition like that—that that I I sing with the pressure off and that I sing because it's, it's what I have to do.
0: Right. So once you've made that cut down to the last twenty, you've already achieved so much. Exactly. Yeah,
2: yeah. you've already yeah. you've already proven that you're qualified, mm-hmm. um, and so then you just want to let your best shine. Right. So ma'am.
0: I talked about Bryn Turful as a past winner, Dmitry Vorostovsky, mm-hmm. Nicole Cabell as a past Cabell, Am yeah. I missing any past winners of note that were on your radar? Uh
2: no, those are kind of the ones that really stuck out and I think the casual opera fan would know.
0: Yeah.
2: Um and Nicole Cabell's one and she won it in I think two thousand and five. You know, and she's she's in Chicago here. She has an and after she won that and her career had already started to take off, but you want to talk about a launching point. Yeah. I mean she became an international star after that. So it's a phenomenal competition and obviously when you look back at the list of winners it does a great job of identifying the top talent mm-hmm. you know in that 18 to 32 year age range so yeah. uh if, if it's not to be taken lightly if you win this competition
0: and and when you win in your opinion do you feel like it really does kind of launch you to like international i think pretty quickly yeah i do yeah.
2: and we're going to talk about the winner uh from this year's competition but i know that it was kind of a surprise that she won yeah. and and so there's been this mad scramble for management Interesting. um and so immediately it thrusts her into the limelight and put her into a position where now she's going to have opportunities that she never would have had before mm. or maybe not maybe you know, you know it's hard to say that but
0: well, let's take a look at some of the singers let's and let's listen to some of the music the link is on our website operaboxscore.com the website is really beautifully done actually on the bbc website it's Opera Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Well, Toby, you and I can just kind of go back and forth here, and we'll listen to some clips. We'll talk about some of these people. You, I imagine, started by listening to the tenors. I did. And there was a tenor, I think, kind of at the top of your list. This was Kang Wong. Mm-hmm. Tell us about him.
2: Uh, Kong Wong is 29 years old, and he was a representative from Australia. I think that's another thing that we should talk about really quickly. Go ahead. Uh, is that each country has a has someone that is representing them so it's not like there's 20 singers from the UK Mm -hmm. um and you know it's really an international competition it's called
0: singer of the world of the world for a a reason for a reason but
2: (laughs) in case that slipped by anyone so he was a represent uh representative of Australia thank you um And I thought he sounded wonderful, and so I listened to a couple of his recordings, and it'll be fun. He's young. He's 29. Uh, It's a light lyric sound that's going to probably blossom into a beautiful full lyric sound. Um, There's great recordings of him on YouTube, and I was really... I actually thought he had a chance to be the winner, because you know when you're a tenor crowd favorite, you know, but...
0: He's currently in the second year of the Lindemann Young Artist Development Program at the Met. Mm -hmm. Hey, uh... His main prize rep list was um, from Romeo and Juliet by Guno, Traviata, Verter by Massenet, ooh, and Das Land des Lächelns, The Land of Smiles by Lehar. So, mm-hmm. like a little kind of lighter operetta piece. Let's take a listen. Hot take, Toby. Tell us about it.
2: George, that definitely did not suck. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. What's it was, the high note there? That's an A. and He made that look really easy. I mean, what's beautiful about that A is it, it sounds exciting when done right. And it's kind of written perfectly with the French. You can close the vowel and spin it. And a lot of tenors will... Uh, and just hold it for a while and decrescendo. And I actually like what he did there. It's very artistically... Uh, clearly thought out and, and beautifully sung.
0: Pourquoi me réveiller from Their Terror? Um, Their Terror by Massonet. I've, done a, I've directed a scene from Their uh, Terror. End of Act One, that's like, or End of Act Two, the main. Mm-hmm the main duet between Verter and, I know, and Charlotte. Ooh, I'm kind of grasping at straws here. You should go to the website, com. Follow the link to the BBC website for the competition, and you can see all these clips. They're mm-hmm. really well broken down, and the camera work is fantastic. If you are a young singer and you want some training on how to act an aria in literally three feet square... Watching these clips, every single one, would be a very good exercise for you. Many, That's great advice. <laughs> many of these singers are communicating emotion, action, intention. I would argue some of these clips are staged in a way of like how they move their feet, how they use not just their faces, their hands, even what they're wearing. I mean, again, these guys are, and gals are at the top of their game, so they're going to be at that level. But that would be some advice mm-hmm. for me to young singers out here.
2: But just listening to that clip, that gives you an idea of what the competition is like. I mean, it has a gorgeous voice. And it's one of, you know, especially when you're singing at this level and that kind of rep, there are expectations of what it should sound like. So you have to tread lightly with some of your choices, and I, I, it's exciting to hear what these young singers have chosen to do.
0: Hey, let's talk about a couple of the Americans in let's the do competition, it. and then we'll get to the ladies. The ladies. Uh, John Chest, graduate of the Chicago College of Performing Arts at Roosevelt University, right here in Chi-Town. I met the man, very nice guy. It was Oliver, of course, that brought us to our attention mm-hmm. that he was in the competition, and I was just for the guy
2: uh, absolutely and he's ex- you want to talk about somebody who's blowing up and we have the you shared that article with me earlier I mean making multiple debuts uh, in Germany right now yeah. at, where, where's he at is he uh, at the he was at the Berlin Bavarian State Opera Bavarian State Opera yeah I mean a career that's really blowing up um, he was a finalist well was he a finalist or was he one of the 20 invited? I don't he think was, he was a he, finalist he,
0: yeah. no he was uh, it's no, for the for the main not, for the main concert he was not a finalist.
2: Correct, there was five, and he was not one of them. However, being a you know a Chicago a CCPA guy, phenomenal for for that school to have someone. I mean, it's already a really and the, the reputation speaks for itself for CCPA. But um, to have a local guy going on having an amazing career, and he he just celebrated his first Father's Day too.
0: Oh my gosh, you're kidding. You,
2: well, hey, you did too. Happy Father's Day, George, you're yesterday. my first one. Well, no, but his... <laughs> sorry. I didn't know he was a dad. Yeah, he just became a dad this year.
0: More proof that you can be a performing artist and you can be a great dad and I'm going to say great oh, husband, I assume. Oh, he's tons, Yeah.
2: Yeah. And he's married to a soprano.
0: His rep list, Giulio Cesare by Handel, Pearl Fishers by Bizet, and Lucia di Lammermoor by Donizetti. Let's take a listen to one of his clips.
3: Smania, Tu mai svegliato in peto. E' troppo, e' troppo orribile. Tu esso fatal sospetto mi fa. ti colpisse un fulmine, se ti colpisse un fulmine, ora ben rio, ora ben rio. Do-
0: It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here with Tobias Wright. We're talking about the 2017 BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition. Ah, Wales. What a great place to be in the summer, or should I say, the monsoon season. Oh. Hey, let's move over to the ladies. And look, by the way, John Chest was on the Berry Hunks website, so we're not just... Hitting on the ladies, Toby and I. I mean, we are. <laughs> but, 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 you know, if Oliver was in the studio, he's, he's going to be chipping in later on in the show. Uh, I want to start with this gal here. This is Lily Jorstad, a mezzo-soprano from Norway, 31 years old. Whoa, look at that smoking headshot, dude. Look at that. It's a pretty lady. It is a pretty lady. <laughs> look at that dark, raven hair, Man. Norwegian-Russian mezzo-soprano. And again, this competition, I mean, it is the Cardiff Singer of the World. It's amazing to me how many of these singers come from Eastern Europe mm-hmm. and from the Oceania, right? So Australia and New Zealand. It's just very surprising. It doesn't seem to be a big American thing or a North American mm-hmm. thing. Where are the Canadians? Where are the Mexicans?
2: That's a great question, actually. I mean, the North American singers were represented only by the, the United States, at least in the finals here. Yeah. Um... But yeah, I mean, there's great singers all over North America. I, that's an interesting question.
0: Lily's list Georg. was uh, Orpheus and Eurydice by Gluck. This is a Bellini opera that I have not heard of. Abelson e Salvini. And then Ariadne of Naxos from Strauss, which is, well, hard to argue with. I, I love Strauss so much. Let's, let's take a listen to, to her selection. dress on. Lily
2: does. Oh, it's a beautiful dress. That's a
0: green and gold, man.
2: Definitely green. doesn't
0: disappoint on the headshot, <laughs> buddy. <anybody.
2: laughs> uh, she's beautiful and the singing is great it's too. It's great. I think, though, when we hear the next clip that we'll listen to, All right. you see you see the difference between uh, can we spoil it now? We can spoil it. Go ahead. Okay, between the winner, who, mezzo-soprano Catr- uh, Catriona Morrison from Scotland, um, and she's sang Dido's Lament. And you'll hear, I mean, to... Similar sounds, Um, however, I think when you hear this clip, she creates such beautiful tension with her voice, Um, and she's very, when you watch the performance, her acting, it really is a lament. Yeah. And you feel that pain, and you see that pain, and then you definitely hear it in the voice. And I, I think it's phenomenal. I couldn't agree more. She was the wild card choice, by the way.
0: Interesting. So
2: she was the wild card choice. It was kind of an upset victory. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I
0: like that. Yeah. Very nice. Katrina Morrison. God, what a fantastic Scottish name. Thirty-one years old, born in Edinburgh. Uh, has sung at the Salzburg Festival. Has also sung in an opera studio in Germany as well.
2: I think I totally butchered her name. I'm sorry.
0: No, I, well, I mean, you did, but it's, it's, it's cool. That's my master's degree. There we go. Let's, let's, let's uh, take a listen here. Katrina Morrison singing Dido's Lament mm-hmm. from Dido and Aeneas by Purcell, is the English would say, Purcell, Purcell, is what the Americans say.
2: Okay, but what I loved about that yeah. is some would say, some would probably think, oh, that's that doesn't show much. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the opposite in that it, it takes, pardon my language, it takes some balls yeah. to really be patient with your singing and to not try to show everything that you have, but show your strength. In your sound, in your color, in your patience through your artistic movements. And that's what she did. And I think that's why she ended up winning.
0: Could not agree with you more. Sometimes simple is good. Mm. You look at what she's wearing. It's very simple. Simple makeup, simple hair. Mm -hmm. These are important factors, I would argue. And then the interpretation is complex. The execution is simple. It's like a nice, clear, open sound. She clearly understands the text. She is singing in her native language. Right. Right? In English. Uh, It makes sense that... That was such a great performance, despite being that wild card dark horse. Yes, the wild that you card darkness, earlier. Yeah. yeah, the orchestra as well, fantastic. I'm now trying to remember who the conductor of the orchestra is. It's uh, Thomas Zundergard, the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, and also the Welsh National Opera Orchestra, conducted by Thomas Hanusch. We have not talked about the panelists. We have not. The judges. And we should probably say a few things about who those judges are. I'll let you handle all this. Well, Kiri Kanawa, the big name on the panel, of course. In addition to David Pountney, the famous director as well. The man who runs Wigmore Hall in London, whose name I cannot now remember either. Uh, There's a female conductor who is on the jury too. It's a it's a really great lineup.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a small lineup too.
0: Well, eight people. That's not that small.
2: Was it eight totally? It's eight. T- in my yeah, head I may- counted five.
0: Well, <laughs> I you can't count. Or well, maybe we know not that I'm am a, a tenor past that.
2: four and it all gets out of whack.
0: <laughs> uh, hey, that's the BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition for 2017. It's back in 2, two years.
2: years. Go check out the clips though. They're the, the website is great as George has mentioned and all those clips are on there and it really gives you, especially as young singers, an idea of what's going on out there and I think that's a, more than anything, that's a great learning tool is seeing what your colleagues are doing and your peers.
0: Coming up it's Monday Evening Quarterback Oliver Camacho files a field report from the Boston Early Music Festival. That's next on Opera Box Score from WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago Opera Class
1: Sports Radio Crass this is Opera Box Score. Who
0: made the grade?
1: Here's Monday Evening Quarterback.
0: It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. As I said at the top of the show, we uh, are in summer mode now, so we record our shows in advance. We release them at our normal time at 9 p.m. Central right here on WNUR. And then. As usual, we re-released as a podcast on Tuesdays. Second segment of the show, Monday Evening Quarterback. And in this segment, due to things a little differently, Oliver has been at the Boston Early Music Festival this past weekend. And the poor man, he had some dreadful problems with flights. But regardless, he was able to submit to me his field report which I'm going to pass on to you, our faithful listeners. Got a couple of clips to put in there as well. And although I wasn't at the festival, I'll throw you some of my own comments too on his report. Here we go. Postcard from Boston. Oliver says, If you try to analyze what makes operas like Puccini's La Boheme or Monteverdi's Coronation of Papea so dramatically impactful, it becomes apparent that structure... Some chronologically organized order of the affects that we can probably map out can be made into a formula for extracting maximum emotion. No opera brings Oliver to tears, he writes, as efficiently as the marriage of Figaro. Mozart and de Ponte knew that in order to touch the heart of the listener, first they had to activate it and warm it up with laughter. Laughter. Now, to that composer's guide of the heart, Oliver would add fatigue. He writes, Being in the audience for three, four, and sometimes five presentations a day makes it very easy to fall asleep in the theater, but it also allows for coloratura spectacles, graceful dancing, broad and sometimes vulgar comedy, or a heartfelt lament to achieve the composer's attended effect. The Boston Early Music Festival, a week-long biennial nerd Oliver's words, not mine, which features over a dozen performances, lectures, and masterclasses each day that begin at 9 a.m. and end after midnight, is an all-you-can-eat feast. The centerpiece of the festival is the opera, presented four times over the course of the week, alternating its primetime slot with other headlining performances, and this year those included Handel's early oratorio The Resurrection and a double bill of Pergolese's comic Intermezzos. Here's a clip. That was a clip from the Carnival de Venice by André Campra. It was this year's unearthed late 17th century centerpiece main stage opera at the Boston Early Music Festival, featured a cast of over two dozen singers, at the center of which were two sopranos, Karina Galvin and Amanda Forsyth, and two Barry Hunks. Jesse Bloomberg and Douglas Williams, whose love trapezoid make up the majority of the opera's plot. The Boston Early Music Festival has a tendency to recast the same singers in all their productions. The audiences are loyal, and many of them, Oliver included, he writes in his field report postcard, return season after season, which has a big payoff in being able to witness the career arcs of the principal artists. Taken on their own merits, the principals in the Camper Opera were incredible. But in the context of the whole week where Forsythe, Bloomberg, and Williams were also the stars of the Saturday Evening Chamber operas and Govan was a soloist in the Thursday Evening Handel Oratorio, the individual performances were nothing short of astonishing. Amanda Forsyth sang with her trademark gleaming tone and sparkling high notes. Karina Govan, always cast in a role that has a good revenge moment, added gravity and her international star power to the affair. Douglas Williams was an elegant and appealing villain, while Jesse Bloomberg made the audience swoon with his sweetness. An opera within the opera, a parody of Orpheus and Eurydice in the underworld, temporarily stole the show. Baritone Christian Imler sent up the angry god archetyped as Plutone, a hilarious contrast to the Lucifer he sang in Handel's Resurrection Oratorio. Soprano Teresa Watkin and tenor Andrew Sheehan Two of the most beloved regulars of the Boston Early Music Festival operas brought the house down as, quote, a happy shade and Orfeo. On Thursday night, Wakim delivered a most feminine and grief-stricken Mary Magdalene in the Resurrection Oratorio. It was a masterclass in expressive singing with exactly the right amount of physical gesture to make a character feel like flesh and blood in an oratorio. Joachim has gone from chorister to ingenue to full-blown Kunstdiva. Aaron Sheehan, who has sung the title role of Monteverdi's Orfeo for the Boston Early Music Festival, was the personification of Baroque poise and elegance as St. John the Baptist in the Handel Oratorio. The Orfeo parody demonstrated Joachim and Sheehan's profound understanding of these conventions, of the historically-informed performances at the Boston Early Music Festival, exaggerating the gestures and turning the vulgarizing vocal acrobatics to the point where they sounded like the worst bel canto opera shtick. George Cedarquist here on Opera Box Score again, giving you creative consultant Oliver Camacho's postcard field report from the Boston Early Music Festival. You know, oratorio is an interesting thing. In that while it was originally written to be sung and not staged, the stories in oratorio are often so compelling that they can actually be staged, I think, with a lot of relevance, meaning, and efficiency. And this is something that I would have loved to have seen at the Boston early music festival. I'm kind of surprised, actually, that in Chicago that more people are not staging oratorio. One thing, in my opinion, that has to happen with oratorio when you reconceptualize it, when you restage it, is that it does need some sort of overarching grand gesture. For example, Katie Mitchell, British director, has done a lot of theater, done a lot of opera, but famously restaged a... Matthew Passion, I believe it was, done in the wake of a Sandy Hook Elementary School type shooting where the parents of these dead children were wrestling with their grief, coming to terms with their grief. And that intention, that big conceptual gesture, matched perfectly well with the text and the music of that. Matthew Passion. I'm not suggesting that that's what happened at the Boston Early Music Festival or that that indeed is what they want to do there. More of a comment that these oratorios can be staged and can be done with great effectiveness. Let's get back to Oliver's field report from the Boston Early Music Festival. He writes, Saturday evening's double bill of Pergolese's La Serva Padrona and Viette e Trancollo was a testament to the ability of these comic gems to enchant and delight audiences when the comedy is unapologetically broad, when the direction supports the music, when the singers have ravishing voices and are as athletic as a Commedia dell'arte troupe, and when the band is so tight that they behave as a character. It is hard to single out any one of the four singers in this cast— Erica Schuller, an Opera Box Score interview guest from last summer, stepped into the spotlight and, in her first scene, threw down the gauntlet. Her comic physicality is so strong, one can almost imagine Schuller in *I Love Lucy* the opera. The night almost felt competitive with each singer: Amanda Forsythe and Douglas Williams as the maid and master of *La Serva Padrona*, alternating scenes with Schuller and Jesse Bloomberg as the bickering lovers. Livieta and Trocollo, raising their level and outdoing each other to make the audience laugh. Jesse Bloomberg is extra handsome as a baritone who is establishing himself as an enterprising artist, equally appealing in early music, song literature, and modern opera. That he could be such an effective comedian came as a surprise, though everything he does, he does well. Oliver adds, the same can be said for the tall and devastatingly good-looking Douglas Williams. On his website just check out the website look at the pictures and you'll see what Oliver means it's not fair he seems to have it all gorgeous voice intelligent musicianship easy stage presence this guy's a dream and he has no right to be that funny on stage lovable in every way Oliver writes and I think if you're a director out there if you're a singer out there you definitely know those singers who have all of those quality good looks yes Great musicianship, yes. Comic sense, yes. And if you're lucky, they're probably great people off stage as well and super easy to work with. Now, as you may know, Amanda Forsyth is one of Oliver's favorite singers who can do anything with her voice and do it while smiling. Boston audiences feel proprietary in their love for her She could basically come on stage and just blink her eyes and she'd still get a standing ovation. Here's a clip from La Serva Padrona. Much of the magic of the Boston Early Music Festival, writes Oliver, is owed to the scholarly detail lavished upon the costumes, set design, dancing, and obviously the music making. There is just so much to enjoy at these performances, and Oliver thinks that everyone should be forced to see these historically informed productions done at such a high level, performing an opinion about Baroque opera. Check out the videos at Boston Early Music Festival's YouTube channel to see for yourself a few notable performers at the festival counter tenor doug dodson and soprano Sarah moya take home the boston early music festival complicated coloratura cup for their performance at a fringe festival concert of sacred music by alessandro milani with the reed college collegium musicum and oliver's one to watch prize goes to suzanne karpov a soprano in the Boston Early Music Festival Young Artist Training Program. He hopes that she stays interested in early music because her talent suggests she could do anything. All right, well, thanks to Oliver for that field update from the Boston Early Music Festival. You know, it's funny, Oliver and I, we've gone back and forth on historically informed productions and performances. He's a big fan. I'm not. We've gone back and forth on Baroque music. He's a big fan. I'm not. But the more that I listen to Baroque music and the more I see excellent productions of it done at places like the Boston Early Music Festival, the more I really do fall in love with it. There is something about that music which is totally enchanting, totally addicting, and there are, without question, ways to stage those stories.
1: This just in... The two minute drill.
0: Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past week, delivered in two minutes tops. The Metropolitan Opera's high stakes new production of Puccini's Tosca next season is being shaken up again. Soprano Christine Opale has dropped out of the title role, quote, for personal reasons, the company announced last Friday. She'll be replaced by Sonia Yoncheva. Pittsburgh Opera has received a $1.2 million donation. The Pat and Michelle Atkins Audience Development Fund will be distributed over four years. The opera company described it as, quote, one of the largest gifts in 78-year history. The gift has funded a new digital marketing position. West Edge Opera, which was abruptly left homeless last month when it lost access to the abandoned 16th Street train station in Oakland that had been its main performance venue for the past two seasons, has found a new home just a few blocks away in an abandoned warehouse. Italian authorities approved construction of a massive stage amid the ruins over the Roman Forum for a rock opera about Nero. On June 6th, opening night, invitation-only spectators made the steep-winding trek from the Forum up the Palatine Hill, and what was incongruous was the huge metallic stage and 3,000-seat arena soaring over the archaeological remains. Some Romans unhappy about that. Philip Gossett, a retired music scholar and professor of music at the University of Chicago, who was considered one of the world's foremost experts on 19th-century Italian opera, died last Monday at his home in the Hyde Park neighborhood. He was 75. Also exit stage right, Joan Kruger, a vocal coach who maintained a private coaching studio in New York City and in 2004, was named Classical Singer Magazine's Coach of the Year. She was also an active recitalist and accompanist. And on this day in 1825, it was the premiere of Il Viaggio a Rim by Rossini. That was in Paris. That's your two minute drill.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, and Oliver the Man Camacho.
0: It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM, two minute drill time. Thanks for sticking with us on the show, by the way. George Cedarquist here with Tobias Wright. I am here. And. Forever and always. Forever and for always. I guess we got to do a disclaimer. Although the show is going out live on WNUR, we are pre recording in the room of requirement, <laughs> as <laughs> my, my wife likes to call it. I love it. <laughs> my daughter says, calls this room the attic. Why is that? I don't know, just because, like, we put a lot of junk in here. I love it, Like, though. there's some bikes in the corner, and the vacuum cleaner, and, the and like, financial it's records. A, it's a happy
2: place, though.
0: It's a happy place. The attic. The attic. I'm down with that. What do you want to talk about first, my man?
2: Um, I don't know. You know what? I, I actually... The Philip Gossett, his passing, I think, you... He, yeah, let's start with that. He, he contributed so much, and whether singers know it or not, every time you open a critical recording score... It, the markings, the amount of work and research that goes into making sure we have the most complete and accurate score, is it's hard to fathom almost. And he dedicated his life um, to researching and making sure that the music we perform today is what was intended to be performed by the composers, especially Rossini and Verdi. And as someone who's got to perform Verdi and use critical scores, I'm so appreciative of someone who dedicated their life to that. So I think it's a sad passing, but I think truly he enriched the operatic community.
0: When you were at Sarasota Opera, you mm-hmm. were part of the tail end of the Verdi cycle Correct. that they were doing. Mm-hmm. What sort of interaction, if any, did you have with Philip Gossett and his additions?
2: Well I mean I nothing personal, uh, I didn't have any interactions with him, but certainly with all of the scores, it's it's really interesting because there was there was part of the cycle, the Verdi cycle, that they reperformed because new critical editions were discovered. And so I think of the magnitude of that kind of work and just to make sure that it's authentic. Um, and so my experience was just knowing that everything that we were performing and learning was correct and was as Verdi had intended because people like Philip Gossip took the time to make sure that that was communicated.
0: What's so important to me about Philip Gossett, who I did not meet, but I did work When I was at Northwestern in grad school with one of his colleagues in musicology as well, Philip Gossett was not a guy who stayed in his office in the ivory tower Mm -hmm. at University of Chicago. I mean, he was very much about like, this stuff is written to be performed by living people in front of living people. He collaborated with Marilyn Horn. Mm -hmm. He collaborated with Cecilia Bartley on a number of early 19th century operas, including Rossini, of course. But there was always that like practical application for him, which is like, how are we going to take what we know about Rossini or about Verdi and make it so that it's going to improve not just some book, but it really improve live performance.
2: Oh, absolutely. And and make the music what the music's supposed to be.
0: Apparently he did rub some of the folks at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra the wrong way. I'm just looking at the Trib Mm -hmm. obituary, which uh, critic John von Rhein wrote. He writes, quote, Gossett resigned from the board of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra Association in 2001 to protest musical director Daniel Barenboim's refusal to base his CSO performances of Verdi's Requiem on the new critical edition the musicologist has supervised. Obviously, I don't know the backstory on that, if that's sour grapes or if that's something important. Barenboim, of course, at that time, music director of the CSO, it's Ricardo Muti now, but um, clearly... Gossip kind of stood by his guns. I was going to say,
2: you talk about living with conviction and, I mean, to leave a board. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And but because- that's when you know that you've done the work and you have the correct answers. And if you have the correct answers and someone refuses to, and I say correct answers, you know, music, it is art. It is up for interpretation. But if you feel like that interpretation uh, can be influenced by research and facts, you would want to use them. Yeah. You would want the people... Uh, with whom you're collaborating to believe in that as well, and have the same artistic artistic ideals. So that's awesome. I hope someday I can quit the CSO board.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you should be so lucky, yeah. man. This rock opera about Nero in Italy—only the Italians, who like 99% of the time have got the most class of anybody living in Europe—they totally. Missed. Oh, they missed. On this one. Gonna...
2: And yeah, please read some of the quotes from the article. People hated it.
0: People hated it. It's going it.
2: through August, though.
0: I know, I know. There's so much to say. Well, I'm going to put a photo on the website, operaboxcore.com, so you can take a look at this. It looks like a bad version of Jesus Christ Superstar <laughs> coming to a lyric opera near you. God, I hope not. Um, when did oh, these...
2: wait. Jesus Christ Superstar is coming here. I thought you meant this opera. Oh like, no no! Oh, this is called oh, we're dif- getting Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah
0: yeah no that I want to see Divine Nero a rock opera by these clowns definitely don't want to see it. In in the Roman Forum,
2: like it's it's in the ruins, the stages. So it's right next to the Colosseum. Right. right
0: it, I mean, have you we, been there? Have you been to Rome, seen it? Yeah, me too.
2: It's beautiful. I don't know why you would.
0: <laughs> There's like a laser light show going on. I know the okay. pictures are awesome. This is just okay. Here's here's a quote from one of the audience members. Audience member. Luca Ragazzi. Awesome. I mean, come on. First of all, what a great Italian name. Luca
2: Ragazzi. Hey,
0: Ragazzi, boys. (laughs) This audience (laughs) audience member, Luca Ragazzi could not hide his disappointment. I'll I'll read this in my voice, not in his voice. Oh, okay. Hey, I thought that maybe it's going to be entertaining, (laughs) of course. But also delivering information, history may be more refined, he said. But it's not refined at all, I promise you. It's just a series of killings. One after another.
2: Yeah. And so it, it also said people, a lot of the audience left it intermission.
0: See, this is the thing. If you're going to do a show at the Forum and you're going to, like, build this huge metallic structure, God, it better be amazing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, to me, it's the, uh, the contrast of the historical aspect of being in this, this place where, I mean, the world was shaped. And then to have a rock opera (laughs) with laser lights, I don't know, it just somehow, I don't know, you don't want to, I wouldn't want to go into the Louvre, I guess, and have, I don't know, I I don't know, some some places deserve their peace, they deserve to be, preserve their silence with history, I I don't know, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Would you
0: do Jesus Christ Superstar, like on the hill where he was allegedly crucified or like at the Wailing Wall or in Jerusalem? I, I would, mean, really? I would not. Really? No. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like immersive theater, site-specific theater does have a time and does have a place. There's, Of course. There's, you can Absolutely. do an and you art know what? song cycle I, in an art gallery. Of
2: course, yes. And you can do rock opera. uh But it's got to be the time and the place. And you know what? I'm not saying that it shouldn't, that it was a poor attempt I just think the location was could have been better thought out but you miss all the shots that you don't take so they had to try right?
0: well not necessarily I mean if you were a tourist though oh I'd be so pissed wouldn't you be pissed? yeah I wouldn't want that yeah
2: exactly I guess that's what I was trying to say earlier not very articulately because I'm still hung over from two days ago
0: yeah <laughs>
2: Wait. A second. Here come the mummies
0: <laughs> <laughs> Here come the mummies That's going to be my good call gonna... <laughs> <laughs> Well, Too bad Oliver is not in person on the show today Because he suggested this story About Sonia Yoncheva replacing Christine Opale Oliver, I, I'm going to put words in his mouth He's not a huge fan of Christine Opale I'm looking at this picture here from the New York Times Her dress I think has got like little birds on it which is sort of funny uh unclear what these personal reasons are for her to drop out of course this production has already had a couple problems first of all it's of tosca the original production at the met is the franco zeffirelli right big massive production huge sets of the interior of the cathedral that that honestly you want to talk about
2: influencing lovers of opera yeah A lot of people fell in love with opera because of the Zeffirelli production of Tosca, you know, at the Met. So, it's interesting. So, it's a new staging. They've already had Jonas Kaufmann drop out of of the performances to spend more time with his family in Germany, Um, and then to have Miss Opelé drop out. I don't like to speculate on things like this. I know that the article in the New York Times uh, talks about, you know, she's had some rough uh, performances this year, but Mm -hmm. here's what I will say, singing is a damn hard business. And the pressure is incredible, especially if you're going to be Tosca at the Met. Can I say "damn" on the radio? Sure. Okay, great. <laughs> but um, so I don't like to speculate as to what it, what the reasons are. But her replacement, I think people are going to. I, that's uh, what I forget her name, but she's uh, she's done Sonia Yancheva. Sonia Yoncheva, Thank yeah. you. Uh, she's already done. She's scheduled for two broadcasts, uh, Met HD broadcasts this year. Is she not? That is correct. So yes. I mean, it's a will. It's I know overqualified person to step in.
0: As you mentioned, Jonas Kaufman has already been replaced, withdrawn, mm-hmm. and then replaced by Vittorio Rigolo. The director is David McVicker of this new production. And there was one production in between. So it was the Zeffirelli. Right. Then it was a very sexual one by Luke Bondi. The... French director, and then the the David McVicar one, which is apparently Do you know McVicker at all? I, yeah David McVicar is a well known British director okay. directs all the time. I mean, around the world, major. Great, Sir David McVicker. Let's well, let's be accurate. This is my ignorance here. that is bliss. Yeah, uh, British truffle singing Scarpia, mm-hmm. and Anna Netrebko also scheduled to perform the title role later on in the run. You mentioned that you know singing is a tough business and. I mean, it makes me think about sports, as it always does. But, like, do sports stars, in your opinion, ever say, like, I'm not able to compete at the highest level for personal reasons? It feels like it's common in opera, and Mm -hmm. it's not common in sports. That's
2: a great question. And I think with sports, no, you never hear LeBron complain. Or you think of guys like Kyle Ripken, who played what? 3,700 games or something mm-hmm. insane in a row. Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Who... Sidney
0: Crosby, Jonathan Taze.
2: Yeah, and so I think, you know, it's a little bit different there. Um, the voice, I hate to say this, it's temperamental. And I think physically speaking, yeah, sports, you're exerting, you're using your body in incredible ways, um, but there's there's not really a precedent for backing out of something. You can't say, you know what, I don't... I. I'm, I'm having a rough week. I don't want to do game seven of the finals. That's not really an option. Whereas singing, it takes time to heal from injuries. It takes time to adjust your technique. So it is a little bit different. Um, and I think unrelatable to sports in that way.
0: But singers have to be very careful, I think, in talking about why they're withdrawing. Exactly. Because it affects future singing.
2: contracts. It affects exactly. what people are willing to um, hire them for. You know, when you think of... Well, like, Jonas, when, once he started, he didn't really start dropping out of stuff until he started singing really heavy rep. And okay. again, that's speculation. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it does. It does. When you when you drop out of something, people speculate. And that's why I don't want to say that sure. on our show. I don't know why she's dropping out. And sure. I don't know if it's a physical thing. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's a, a family thing. It could be a number of different things. So, okay. I don't know. It is interesting. It, and And singers do like to protect themselves, you know? Viazon didn't want a lot of people to know exactly what was going on with some of his illnesses and he took time off and now he's back and he's singing pretty well.
0: But where sports is so much about the physical, right? Yes. Like the physical is primary, but there, there is also the mental mm-hmm. to a large degree, but mostly in sports we are, we're assessing the physical. Person pulled their hamstring, tore their ACL, whatever it is. But in opera... The physical is almost the hidden part, right Many people don't know how difficult it is physically all they understand is the mental challenges of the mental challenges of learning the music, uh, creating a role. So they're sort of reversed it seems to yeah, be, a little bit. businesses it, it can be I think unfair sometimes to judge opera singers on the sports and athletes terms and vice. There works. are a
2: lot of parallels, but I think when it comes to withdrawing from competition or engagements, I th- I do think it's a little bit different.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Last item on the two-minute drill was uh, the announcement by the West Edge Opera, which is in the Oakland area. Hey, man, it comes full circle. We were just talking about Golden State. Golden State, yeah. Now, here we are. Uh, the company's run by Mark Straczynski, Stry- the director. They do a three opera summer season, and now they're moved venues to a new place called Pacific Pipe, Oakland, which is an abandoned warehouse. Got to be careful there, right? I mean, there was that big warehouse fire yeah, in yeah, Oakland. Yeah,
2: like in the Oakland and the Arts District. I mean, I'm, not, I'm no, not trying God, to suggest
0: no. anything. I'm not trying to be crass here, mm-hmm. uh, but just, it does make you think of that. I wanted to ask you about, this is their repertoire for their summer season. Ambrose Thomas's Hamlet. Don't know it. The Chastity Tree by Mozart's contemporary Vincente Martin Isolaire. Don't know it. And Libby Larson's 1990 opera Frankenstein. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have t- seen the um, Ambrose Thomas Hamlet. I saw it in Vienna. I don't know the. I know the composer Marta Isoler, but I don't know this opera at all. Mm-hmm. And I've heard of Libby Larson, mm-hmm. the composer, but I don't know, I don't Frank- know this opera Frankenstein. Yeah, neither do I. I mean, so even... I mean, and you gotta think to.
2: I don't know the first two operas, but to do a Frankenstein in an, an abandoned warehouse, I sure that the lighting the staging is going to be fantastic a lot of potential and you know what this is a young opera company and we know what this is like working with small companies in cities that don't have permanent homes finding venues is hard and we I think as in this business again talking about it being difficult you have to be flexible and to be flexible with an entire company is very difficult and not something a lot of people can grasp
0: could not agree more the bigger the company the less flexible you're able to be right hey you want to wrap this show up I do good call
1: Bad call on Opera Box Score.
0: All right, Tobias, right? Good call, bad call. What do you got?
2: I have a good call, and we kind of mentioned it a second ago. Uh, But when I was some friends yesterday, not really sure what was going to happen, and we end up at the Randolph Street Festival okay. uh, in the West Loop. And there were two bands that played that I happened to see, and I just have to tell you, I my mouth was wide open, I had no idea what was going on, it was phenomenal. The first band was called Too Many Zoos, uh, a band from New York, a guy playing a bari sax, a guy playing a bass drum with all sorts of other percussion instruments attached to it, and then a trumpet player, and I mean, it was like funk. Reggae, Loud, fast. They yeah. were air-humping things. It was amazing. I giggled. And then, not thinking it could get any better than that, the next group was called Here Come the Mummies. And it's this group based out of Nashville. They're all professional musicians. They hide their identities because some of them already have contracts with other recording uh, labels. Amazing. And they come out and they're dressed like mummies. And it was, like I had described to you earlier, It's kind of like, uh, it was hilarious. It was funk. It was rock. It was just a great... Sunday evening in Here Chicago. Here Come the Mummies. Here Come the Mummies. Please go listen to Here Come the Mummies. I'll
0: definitely listen to it. If I can remember, I'll put a link on the website <laughs> as well. That's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at VoxerShorts.com. V O X E R S H O R T S.com. The general manager of WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Have you liked our Facebook page yet? Yeah, I didn't think so. So do it. And then share and comment on our posts. And on Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and help promote our show by leaving a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For my co host, Tobias Wright, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with the A.C. running. We're back on Monday, June 26th when I do a solo show from the wilds of northern Michigan. Tune in then to find out exactly where I am. Argo Radio is up next. This is Wnurfm, Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment. Hey, George Cedarquist here again. If you're listening to this now, you're getting the podcast version of our show from Monday, and that gives me the chance to set the record straight. Two singers that I talked about in the Boston Early Music Festival field report from Oliver, I mispronounced their names. That would be Teresa Wakim and Aaron Sheehan. Also, I mispronounced the name of the Rossini opera. It's Il Viaggio a Rim, And lastly, after we recorded our show, the news came out that Chicago Opera Theater had hired its new music director. I'll let you guys figure out who that is. We'll be covering that story more on the next episode. Cheers!